0: You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Love Cast. www.savagelovecast.com.
1: If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony,
2: well, there's nothing you can't have on the Savage Love
0: Oh my goodness, I am under fire from conservatives. You can read it at all sorts of places, mediaite, newsbusters, conservative website, newsbusters. Uh, this is from com. LGBT activist Dan Savage is under fire from conservatives for offering Dr. Ben Carson a unique opportunity to put his money where his mouth is or to place his lips where Savage's dick is regarding recent comments that prison rape proves being gay is a choice. Ben Carson, Dr. Ben Carson is a right-wing Republican not and a gifted neurosurgeon. Those things, uh, I guess, can happen in one person's brain. Gifted neurosurgeon, right-wing Republican, not anti-Obama, anti-Obamacare, far-right-winger, anti-gay marriage, anti-choice, um, and very useful to the Republican Party, which backs and supports all sorts of blatantly racist policies like undoing the Voting Rights Act that bet Dr. Ben Carson is an African-American. And so, of course, they're going to rush him to the – TV cameras to inoculate themselves against charges of racism. Anyway, Dr. Ben Carson, he's going to run for president. And he went on CNN and was interviewed by Chris Cuomo and began to talk about gay marriage. And here's what Dr. Ben Carson said that got him in trouble.
3: People have no control
0: over their race, for instance. You think they have control over their sexuality? Absolutely. You think being gay is a choice? Absolutely. Why do you say that? Because a lot of people who go into prison going to prison straight, and when they come out, they're gay. So did something happen while they were in there? All right. Going to prison makes you gay. All gay people have been to prison, and all that sex in prison is consensual, and it just magically turns people gay. That's how it works. Uh, Before we get to what I said in response to Dr. Ben Carson that got me in trouble on conservative websites, as if I'm not always in trouble on conservative websites for something, Dan Savage rolled over and farted this morning today on NewsBusters. Religious conservatives like Carson, they argue that being gay is a choice and we all giggle and we all laugh. They argue that it's a choice that people can control and anybody who knows a gay person or is a gay person knows that, that that's not true. But this is what we don't talk about. Where they, what they mean when they say that, what they're driving at is this. Because gay people – Choose to be gay. We're not entitled to civil rights protections. We're not covered by the 14th Amendment. We don't deserve equal protection under the law. We shouldn't be allowed to marry or adopt because being gay is a choice and nobody has to be gay. So, If you don't like being discriminated against, if you want to legally marry, if you want to adopt, don't change the law. Don't argue for equal rights. Don't sue. Just choose to be straight. It's that easy because you see, Dr. Carson is essentially arguing, not essentially is arguing Gayness is not an immutable characteristic. It is not like race. People can't change their race. They can change their sexual orientation. They can choose to be straight. Therefore, gay people are not entitled to any rights at all. Religious conservatives like Carson, they go on TV to make this argument. At the same time as they're sending – Other religious conservatives out to knock on doors, to distribute pamphlets, to proselytize and evangelize all over the country, all over the world in an effort to get people to do what exactly? To change their religions, to choose a different faith. So faith, by implicit admission by religious people, is itself not an immutable characteristic. You can change your faith can't swing a dead cat in America without hitting someone who's trying to talk you into changing your faith or adopting one. If you are lucky enough to not have a faith and yet religious belief, faith it's covered by civil rights laws and anti-discrimination statutes. Even though it's a choice, even though you can choose not to be religious, even though if you get fired for being a Mormon, you could have chosen to be a Presbyterian instead and not gotten fired for being a Mormon. And yet you're protected under the law if you are a Mormon. There are other examples of mutable characteristics covered by civil rights statutes, military service, and marital status. No one has to serve in the military. No one has to get married. People have control over whether they marry or enlist. Those are volunteer armies, the marriage army, the U.S. Army. And yet, like religious belief, both are covered by almost all civil rights statutes, military service, marital status. And yet people like Ben Carson aren't out there arguing that civil rights statutes should not protect, that the Constitution should not protect people based on marital status or military service or faith. The Constitution applies when it comes to the choices of faith, military, marriage. Oh, but the Constitution suddenly doesn't apply. 14th Amendment, equal protection under the law, does not apply when it comes to the choice that you've made around your sexual orientation, even devil's advocate here conceding the point. Okay. Sexual orientation is a choice. And then you leap a Dr. Ben Carson leaps from it's a choice to therefore not covered by the bill of rights. Like, all right, then let's have some consistency. If I'm not going to be covered, if gay people, lesbian people, bi people, trans people, if we're not going to be covered by the bill of rights, because these are crazy choices that we've made, then all these other things that are also choices that are obviously choices, should not be covered. And the same assholes out there arguing that gay should not be covered because it's a choice have to be pressed on this. They have to be asked why religion should be covered, why marital status, why military service. These choices also covered. Goose and gander here shouldn't be covered because you're gay, shouldn't be covered because you are gay. Mormon now. You chose to be Mormon. You chose to be Presbyterian. Maybe your parents chose that for you by raising you in a particular, faith. it's still a choice. And if choices aren't covered by the Bill of Rights, religious people are screwed. Anyway, I wrapped up my little blog post that I wrote addressing Dr. Carson's comments with what I like to call the choicer challenge. Choicers. That's what I call people who argue that being gay is a choice. They're like truthers who argue that 9-11 was an inside job or birthers who argue that Barack Obama was born in Kenya or deathers, which was briefly a thing. People actually were arguing that Osama bin Laden was alive and well and I don't know, living in West Hollywood as a go-go boy. Choicers are like those folks, another group of deranged conspiracy theorists who can't be persuaded by science or evidence or facts. And they insist that being gay is a conscious choice that a person makes. And I've challenged choicers in the past to prove it, to put their mouths where their assholery is, to put up or shut up. And I issued that challenge again, a challenge I've issued to other politicians in Canada and the United States in the past. And I just issued it to Dr. Carson. And I wrote at the end of my blog post, Dr. Carson, dear Dr. Carson, being polite, if being gay is a choice, prove it. Choose it. Choose to be gay yourself. Show America how that's done, Dr. Carson. Show us how a man can choose to be gay. Suck my dick. Name the time and the place and I will bring my dick and a camera crew and you can suck me off and win the argument and we will have the proof. Very sincerely yours, Dan Savage. This is crude and rude, but you know what else is crude and rude? Suggesting that people who are queer have made a sick or sinful choice suggesting that people who are gay, lesbian, bi, or trans do not deserve equal protections under the law. Equally crude. And boiling that down to this argument that people just make up their minds to be gay when if you ask a straight person, could you choose to suck a dick and like it and love it and ever thereafter have a burning hunger for cock, they're going to say, no, no, of course not. That same straight person, many of them will then turn around and say that being gay is a choice. Or they'll say it before you ask, when you press them on it, when you ask them if they could do it and they say they couldn't possibly, sometimes the light bulb goes off in their heads. That's what I was trying to do here with Dr. Carson, trying to get that light bulb to go off in his head by offering my dick for him to suck. By asking him to make the choice that he thinks 13-year-old gay boys growing up in shitty parts of Texas where they're being abused and bullied by their peers, by their families, by their faith leaders, have actively made and sinfully made. All right, if it's a choice, Dr. Carson, you make it. Suck my dick. This you're not allowed to say. This is impolite of me. I'm being beat up on Twitter by right-wing conservatives, even by some gay activists who think I'm being rude. And I am. And being rude to make a very salient point. Not a choice. But even if it were a choice, still deserving of equal protections under the law, just like those other choices we discussed earlier. Okay, before we get to the calls, uh, a quick point of personal privilege here, just a shout out to a friend in Europe who's very unhappy right now and in a lot of pain and not the fun kind of pain. Your friends in Seattle miss you and love you, and hopefully we will all see you again soon. And now your calls.
3: Hello, Dan and company. I have a quandary that I need your help to resolve. Uh, I'm a 40-mid-something married guy, happily. Uh, My wife is a quote-unquote good Christian, and I am not. I am something more of a pervert and a hedonist. uh, And despite that difference, we have a a loving and wonderful relationship and a good sex life. Uh, A couple of years ago, my wife came home from a Bible study class, and she asked me if I would stop being a consumer of pornography. Being the hedonist and the pervert that I am, I, of course, immediately tried to talk her out of that request. Uh, But realizing that she was adamant on this topic, I did what any dutiful and good husband would do. I agreed to it and then started getting much more diligent about clearing my browser cache so that this wasn't something she'd have to confront from day to day. And that's worked fine for a couple of years. Uh, The quandary that I have is that you've been announcing and declaring that the Hump Tour is uh, coming to Los Angeles, which is where I live. And I would really, really enjoy going to see uh, the Hump Festival. The problem that I have is that what, for the last couple of years, has been a a pretty easy white lie, lie of omission, not talking about uh, my consuming of pornography, Uh, If I were to go get tickets to see Hump, then I'm more actively having to come up with an explanation for where I'm going to be that evening, what I'm doing, uh, et cetera. And it's no longer kind of a don't ask, don't tell policy. I would have to actively lie to my wife, which is not something I do. So my quandary is, do I reopen this conversation about pornography? Ideally, I would love it if my wife would come to the show with me, but I think that highly unlikely, given her position on the topic. And instead, uh, I'll probably end up going alone. But if I can't come up with a reason or a place to be or an explanation that sits with my sense of right and wrong with how I converse with my wife and the, you know, truths that we tell each other, then I don't know how I'm going to pull it off. And I would be very sad to miss this opportunity to see your festival.
0: Your first mistake was agreeing to not watch porn anymore instead of putting in front of your wife the only workable solution in these cases, which is kind of the one you're half acidly doing. I will pretend not to watch porn. You will pretend to believe me. Maybe that's actually what's going on. Maybe she is upholding my standard advice for couples who have this conflict over porn. If your partner who watches porn is pretending not to watch porn and doing a relatively good job of it, being very conscientious about protecting you from the evidence, if you should stumble over the evidence once or twice, you will repay their consideration by ignoring it rather than going ballistic. Maybe she stumbled over evidence that you watch porn and has turned a blind eye and on some level appreciates your effort to keep it from her. That's the best case scenario. If I had been at your elbow when she issued this ultimatum or this request to you to stop watching porn, I would have advised you not to lie. I would have advised you to tell her that you realize porn bothers her, that you will cut back. You will make sure that you don't leave evidence lying around, but it is unfair of her to police your erotic individual expression in this controlling and bizarre way. But it's too late for that. And, For all we know, your wife believes you when you say that you are not watching porn. And how do you reopen this convo, particularly around going to Hump? Well, I'm not sure. A a quick anecdote about Hump. This has happened to me so many times at Hump where people have come up to me after a screening of our little porn festival. And Hump, again, for those of you who are just tuning in, is an amateur porn film festival that's been taking place in Seattle and Portland for the last decade. And people make five-minute or less Porn shorts and they're, they run the gamut from animation to erotica to hardcore pornography. Uh, a lot of them are really funny. A lot of them mix humor and uh, boners and wetters basically. People actually having sex but enjoying themselves and laughing. And And I've had this happen to me a bunch of times where people come up to me after the screening and give me this look and say, you know, I hate pornography and my – husband or my wife or my friends. They dragged me here. They got me a ticket. They talked me into coming even though I hate pornography. But I really loved this show. I really loved Hump. And I think what people experience at Hump is a little different. You know, most people have a problem with porn, find it very deeply dehumanizing. And the porn at Hump is very deeply humanizing. And people really tap into it. I have had people – who one year told me that they were dragged to hump. They hate porn. They loved hump. Submit a film in the following year's festival. Make porn themselves for next year's hump film festival. So would your wife be one of those people who got dragged to hump and grabbed me in the lobby afterwards to tell me how much they loved it and the following year was up there on the screen herself? I couldn't tell you. You're in a better position to make that assessment. All that said, caller, I think you're hand-wringing around the distinction between – The lies of omission, covering your tracks, deleting your browser history, and the lie of commission where you're going to tell her you're not where you are so you can slip into this porn film festival. It's a distinction without much of a difference. You have this little private sphere in your erotic life and your erotic expression that your wife for unfair and controlling reasons has a problem with and you've created a, a workaround where what she doesn't know isn't hurting her. And I think that could apply also in the case of slipping into a theater with a bunch of strangers to watch an erotic film festival. The downside for you could be a lot of Hump screenings are sold out. You might run into people that you know at Hump, people who know your wife, and then you're going to have to bring them in on the conspiracy to keep it from her. Perhaps it would be a good idea to reopen the issue and tell your wife that you are going to go to this porn film festival. You would like her to come with you. If she can't, you understand, but You are individuals and equals, and she shouldn't be dictating to you in this way about your media consumption, pornographic or not.
4: Hi, Dan. I am a 33-year-old bisexual woman in the Northeast. I'm calling because I have been seeing a 29-year-old man who just got out of a 10-year relationship, two years married, a very happy relationship because he came out as a cross-dresser and as bisexual, and his wife was not interested. I love him cross-dressing, and I love pegging him. I have two issues. The first is that he's not even able to admit that we're seeing each other. He kind of calls it just hanging out, and um, he's amazing, and the sex is the best sex of my life, but he's, he's very sweet, and he acts like a boyfriend one word together. And as much as he tells me, you know, I can't be with anyone right now, it can really get confusing when someone is calling you baby and telling them they miss you and staring into your eyes. My second question is, I'm not sure what to do. I have a really strong fear, urge, whatever you want to call it, that I need to get married and have kids, and I I want that. And he's not in that place at all. But I'm just crazy about him, and the sex is amazing. He's literally the perfect person, if I had to imagine my perfect person. And I just don't know if I should stick with this and see it through or try and meet someone who's in a place to settle down.
0: There was one detail that I needed that you didn't give me in your, in your call in the recorded question. How long have you been seeing this guy?
4: Not very
0: long since, like, January. (laughs) Oh, my God. a
4: little bit. Calm the fuck
0: down.
1: Calm the fuck
0: down. This guy's. you said he's 29? Yeah. And he's out of a 10-year marriage, which means he got married at 19? Well,
4: no, it's not. He was married for, like, a year and a half. He was together for 10 years. Okay.
0: So, still, he was in a 10-year-long relationship since he was a teenager with somebody that... You know, he should have disclosed the bi and cross-dressing thing to before marrying that person. Well, he
4: apparently
0: didn't realize it at the time. People should know themselves and explore and engage in some self-discovery. That's why you don't marry young. That's why you don't marry somebody you've been with since you were 19. Right. Everyone, please make a note of that. That said, like – you know he's out of this 10 year long relationship that probably wasn't very sexually fulfilling. He hasn't been able to explore much of who he is. It sounds like you even based on what you just said, he's still in the process of discovering who he is, and along come you, right after the end of this relationship, it's barely March, and you're telling him or well, you're not telling him or you're worried you're wringing your hands because he isn't describing what you're doing as a relationship yet.
4: No, not – I'm not telling him anything, and it's just – I just wish that he would understand that, like, we're seeing each other. Like, everything, even if you're just a fuck buddy, that's a relationship of sorts.
0: Right. No, no, no. I'm right there with you. I've said that a million times on the show. People are like, we're not in a relationship. We're just friends with benefits. And I'm always like, that's a relationship. So you can't get him to admit that he's in a relationship, but – You want to be strategic about this. If you really believe that this guy could be someone you could spend your life with, if the sex is that awesome, if he's that awesome, you need to be a little thoughtful and strategic about how you roll this out. Yeah, technically you could go to him and say, we are in a relationship, goddammit, acknowledge that. But that might spook him. Right. Because he's out of this 10-year relationship. He might not be ready for another commitment. And he's only been seeing you since January. (laughs) I know, I know. So chill the fuck out.
4: So so, how am I supposed to be strategic?
0: Wait. <laughs> yeah, wait. Like, keep doing what you're doing. It's a relationship as far as you're concerned. Calling it that or having to, that conversation with him at this stage could ruin everything. So just take a yeah. fucking chill pill or 15 or 20 of them every morning and tell yourself <laughs> that, you know, when he's... The logic of this will become apparent to him if indeed you guys are supposed to be together. And... He may be ready to start calling it a relationship at four months. You're obviously ready at two months or less. And he (laughs) may need four months or six months. You know, uh, Terry is only when I talk about. But when I met Terry, I had just gotten out of a year-long relationship where we committed too soon and it was a big disaster. Friends now, it's all okay. (laughs) But I had just gotten out of that relationship, hadn't left the house for three months because I was so depressed. Left the house, met Terry, and I thought this is a rebound thing. And I wouldn't let him call me his boyfriend. I wouldn't say I love you for a long time. Mm
2: -hmm. And we ended
0: up doing stupid stuff like there's something I want to say, but I'm not going to say it. And you know what it is.
2: Right. (laughs) And it was just
0: acknowledging that this felt rushed. It felt too soon. It felt like I just got out of something and blah, blah, blah. But we were kind of acknowledging that we both had, you know, we're both developing a bad case of feelings, but we didn't want to jinx it. Or be, you know, Pollyanna about the, the circumstances of, you know, technically I was rebounding. Sometimes you rebound and score. I did, right? Maybe he's rebounding right. off you right now, but he's going to rebound and score. <laughs> but you could, to torture the metaphor to death, you could knock the ball out of his hands accidentally by demanding that he stop the game to tell you exactly what it is that you're doing.
4: No, yeah, I don't, I don't, need, to, I don't need to hear it. I mean, I know. I know what we're doing so and if he's not gonna admit it then that's
0: fine if he's not, I that, that wait. He's not ready to say it yet if it like yeah for how what was it january 1st at 1205 in the morning that you met him or was it january 30th <laughs> it's just been like
4: well no we've been talking for a little while but we started hanging out like actually started hanging out in january
0: when in january did you start hanging out at what point give me a like, date
4: beginning I don't know, beginning like January 5th or something.
0: Okay, so it's been two fucking months, barely. (laughs) I know. Chill the fuck out. (laughs) Keep pegging this guy's ass, keep loving him and telling him you're into the cross-dressing. And at a certain point, Mm -hmm. six months, nine months, you can say, hey, I'm 33 and eventually I want X. I think I'd be a good partner for you for that if and when you're ready if that's not something you're ever going to be ready for, you need to let me know because I'm 33 and I want to have kids, and I'm not—I right. don't have forever. I don't have right. 10 years to make up my mind about that. So, right. you know, I think at nine months or a year, you could call the question. But at six weeks, lady, you're being crazy, and you're being your own—and you're being your own worst enemy.
4: Right. I know. I know. That's what I wanted to ask you, and not say to him.
0: <laughs> well, here I am telling you: keep enjoying your time with him. Keep. Not like, you know, be yourself, be real. If there's a conflict, deal with it. You you know, don't feel like you're on an audition where you have to just be endlessly ingratiating. Have the relationship you want to have. But for right now, strategically, I would advise you not to have a conversation about labels because that could spook the poor guy who just got out of the 10-year marriage or 10-year relationship.
4: I agree. And I wanted to say to any prospective cross-dressers out there, go for it because there are women who – who like it or who, who learn that they like it when they meet
0: you. And also, could you please briefly address the fact I, – I often hear whatever pegging comes up that mm-hmm. it, it's awful of me to even recommend it or talk about it because there's literally nothing in it for the woman. That a woman fucking a man in the ass with a strap-on dildo, that might be pleasurable for him. He has a prostate, but there's nothing in it for her. It's just a kind of service that she's doing for him and it's degrading for her and there's no pleasure or joy or sexiness in it for her. Do you agree with that, or is there something in pegging for you as the top?
4: Yeah, I absolutely 100% do not agree with that. Um, First of all, there's insertable dildos, which gives you actual physical pleasure while you're pegging them, and it's great. Um, And there's actually something to, like, grind up against. But if you don't have that, the power dynamic is so sexy, like, getting to be the the man, quote-unquote, in the situation is such a turn-on that, like, you can easily, you know, have an orgasm from that. Like, it's Thank you. It's just such a great situation. Yeah. Thank you for I, saying that. I think that. It's, totally
0: wrong. It's so reductive when people, you know, posit in this argument that there's literally nothing in it for you unless a gland of yours happens to be being poked at that moment. And right. that's just so not... What so much sex and arousal and turn on is about, that there are circumstances and situations that are very, very arousing that aren't about a gland being poked at that moment. And it could be Mm -hmm. the inversion of normal typical sex roles where you're getting to you know, take a walk on the penetrator side as opposed to the penetrated Mm -hmm. side. It could be anything. People who like to be tied up, they're not getting a gland poked. People who like to be peed on at that moment when they're being peed on, they're not getting a gland poked. Sex ain't right. just gland poking. There's a psychological component to it. There's a situational component mm-hmm. to it. There are kinks emotional. and an emotional component to it. Mm-hmm. And that's Absolutely. what's in pegging for the ladies who enjoy it. Not everyone enjoys it. Not everyone has but to everyone enjoy it. But everyone should try it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, everyone should at least think about trying it because it can be yeah. really awesome. And you don't know if you'll think it's awesome if it's something that will really click for you perhaps until you do try it.
4: Exactly that's what happened with cross-dressing. I was never into it before. And I met him and like started to understand like that his desires to like be subby and submissive and, and you know, feminized. Like I can understand that I have those same desires sometimes. And now I love it. And I watch cross-dresser porn. It's, it's amazing.
0: Well, enjoy.
4: (laughs) Thank you so much, Dan. I love you so much.
0: Love you too. Bye.
4: Thanks for calling. (laughs) Bye. Hey,
1: Dan, I'm a 26 year old, gay, female. I like it when somebody is playing with my feet sexually. And for a couple of years now, I haven't been in a relationship and haven't had much sexual interaction with other people. (laughs) And I love having deep foot massages, but um, I feel at the same time a bit guilty when I get them. I don't go often because I feel like is it bad that I'm might sometimes I get something more than just relaxation and afterwards or during, I feel instantly horrified that this person doesn't know, isn't consenting really to the pleasure that I'm getting. And I don't know, is it, is it just that, you know, what they don't know doesn't hurt them or should I pursue, you know, foot massages and a, different
0: realm. Let's say there's a gay guy uh, who's really turned on by being bossed around by great big muscular he-men, like big muscle gods. And so he hires a personal trainer at the gym who bosses him around at the gym who's a great big muscly he-man and derives a secret thrill and actually, you know, employs the personal trainer, is helping him pay his bills, is getting the benefit of the exercise and going home afterwards and masturbating furiously about it. Is he doing anything wrong? I don't think so. So long as he's not, you know, making his personal trainer feel uncomfortable. As long as he's not getting erections or making lewd or inappropriate comments. So long as he's deriving those secret thrills secretly, it's not a problem. Sometimes the line between uh, a sensuous experience and an erotic experience can be a little blurry. I mean think about people who regularly get massages Not from sex workers, not at a jack shack, from a professional licensed massage therapist. That's a sensual experience, having someone touch your body like that. Sometimes you have a physiological response. You're not intending to become aroused, but your dick or your pussy has a mind of its own and your body responds. And if you talk to massage therapists, non-sex worker massage therapists – it's part of the job that sometimes people without intent become physically aroused by the experience of the massage and they are professionals about it. It's not a crime to get a boner. The massage therapist isn't going to jump on that boner and the person with the boner getting the massage it shouldn't bring that boner up in conversation because that would be creepy. But just adults like, wow, this thing happened. The line between sensual and erotic got a little blurry. That you intentionally go and seek out foot massages where you become secretly – top secretly aroused, I don't think is a violation of the person who is massaging your feet. Some people will take a simplistic black and white consent absolutist approach and say that this is a sexual experience for you. This person isn't aware that it's erotic for you. Therefore, you are involving them in your erotics in a non-consensual way and that is not okay. That is some sort of sexual assault or sex crime. And and I disagree because we all move through the world sometimes having – Erotic experiences, sometimes having an erotic response to stimuli that is random and that the whatever providing us with that stimuli is completely in the dark about. The person with the boot fetish who goes to the store and buys himself a pair of cowboy boots, trying on that pair of cowboy boots, having the cowboy boots brought to him in the box, taken out, and the person who works in the cowboy boot store, helping him put those boots on. That can be a really erotic experience for that guy. And so long as he keeps his fucking mouth shut, no one's harmed by it. Right? As long as he isn't getting boners and being creepy about it in the face of the person who has to wait on them, not a problem. same standard applies to you. Go get that foot massage. That person performing those massages wants clients, wants customers Be a good and grateful customer. Keep the fact that you're aroused to yourself. Keep your secret thrill secret. And tip the nice lady. And tip her well. And don't feel guilty.
4: Hi, Dan. I have a question that's a pretty touchy subject. I'm a white female, and uh, my sexuality doesn't really play into it, but I consider myself bi. And I live in the South, and I have lots of black friends, and I am in a lot of Facebook groups and forums and discussion panels with a majority of black people. A couple times, your name has come up discussing homosexuality, bisexuality, transgender people, et cetera. And it seems to me, and this has been admitted and discussed, often that um, the black community in general, maybe specifically more down South, has a more prominent homophobia, and it seems to be more accepted to be homophobic. And there's also, I've heard a couple people express the theory that the man or, you know, the government, the, the, the white powers that be are in control. Some people say Illuminati, some people say you know, the 1%, whoever, that there's a a conspiracy against the black man and the the black family to turn black men gay. And I'm sure you've heard this before. I haven't heard it addressed on your show yet. And I was wondering if you were presented with that theory, how would you uh, respond to it? And specifically, this is what I've which I I don't believe at all, but it's getting harder and harder and more frustrating for me to try to argue with people on this, that black men are being turned, quote-unquote, gay or bisexual and thus more effeminate because the powers that be are trying to break up the black family and stop black men from reproducing, and it's basically trying to undermine black people as a whole by turning them gay. But how do you feel about this conspiracy theory?
0: Joining me by phone to help field this one, Jonathan Capehart. He's an opinion writer for the Washington Post and a regular contributor, a featured contributor on MSNBC. And you are a gay black man. Yes, I am, Dan. So what was it? Was the Illuminati, the (laughs) 1%? What made you gay?
2: (laughs) It was the man. (laughs) The man the man made me
0: gay. The man made you gay.
2: The idea that there is this vast white wing conspiracy <laughs> to turn the black man gay and to destroy the black family and to keep the black man down is so potently ridiculous that I think the only advice the, – the, the advice I would give the caller is to look those people in the eye – and tell them that they are ridiculous, and to show them concrete proof. Have them show her concrete proof of this conspiracy.
0: Well, that's the point of a conspiracy is there is no concrete proof, which is one of the things people point to as evidence of the conspiracy itself is that all the proof has been hushed up or covered up so well.
2: And you know what? A surefire way to blow up this particular conspiracy is to challenge those people who harbor these ideas to go to an actual gay black person and ask them, talk to them about why are they gay? Just ask that question
3: mm-hmm.
2: and see if the man, the white wing conspiracy, the-, um, <laughs> the Illuminati. Were they bra- yes, the Illuminati, were they brainwashed into becoming gay? I think the big problem is that no one still within the black community, Far too many, or I should say far too few people are comfortable talking about this.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Conspiracy, conspiracy theories breed in areas where people are afraid to talk. Either they breed in areas where people are too afraid to talk, or they breed in areas where there is not enough evidence to disprove the theory. Mm-hmm. And all anyone has to do is talk to a gay black person mm-hmm. about their lives. And it will disprove and dispel whatever conspiracy theory there is
0: so as a as a gay black dude do you is it your opinion that homophobia and transphobia is worse in African American communities than in pale white translucent communities?
2: <laughs> I don't know I, I mean, I don't know if I would go that far that it is quote unquote worse in the african American community. Mm-hmm. I would say that our community has has to do a better job of talking about these issues, which is why I am urging the caller to tell people who are harboring these ideas to actually talk to a gay person. And it's not like probably these people hurling these conspiracy theories have to go far. Mm -hmm. I mean, they can go to the choir director, they can go to (laughs) Cousin Timmy, who, you know, jumps rope instead of plays basketball. They could go to, you know, Uncle John, who always brings his friend uh, within to, to Thanksgiving. It's not like we don't know gay people in our families or in our communities. The problem is that no one or very few people take the extra step to talk to those people.
0: You, you cite the choir director, and I think that's important because the role of the, the African American church in, in black communities, its importance, its centrality and it, it, it's crucial importance, and you only need to look at who led the African American civil rights movement during the 60s, Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King, right, who is a pastor, mm-hmm. to see mm-hmm. the centrality and importance of the church. And is this a problem with religiosity and not race when we talk about homophobia in the African American community, this dependence on and still role of the church?
2: And I think you, you you hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's that's the key thing here. That the the church, the black church, plays such a central role in the community because I mean, think of it as as the town hall, the one place where the community could gather uh, safely and in safety. Depending on where you were in the South at the time, whether they're going to blow up your church or burn a or, you know burn a cross on, uh, on the on the lawn of your church, but because of the centrality, uh. Of the church in the black community, it has a religiosity, as you said, features prominently mm-hmm. in the outlook. Just that's why religion has such a hold on the way people think—not just about gays and lesbians and their uh, and, and where they fit in in the grand scheme of things, but on a whole on a whole host of issues. I mean, I don't—I'm not terribly religious. I don't go to church every sunday or even most sundays but my my conversation and language is filled with religious references mm-hmm. um, i say lord have mercy all the time <laughs> i you know I've, i'm i'm calling on the lord for this and that and jesus and everything that has nothing to do with the fact that uh, i'm terribly religious or spiritual it's just being african american that it's all around you
0: one argument I'd like to to arm this person with is the threat to African-American families aren't openly gay black men or openly bi-black men or lesbians. The threat to an African-American family is a closet case, marrying someone of the opposite sex, making them miserable, mm-hmm. not being capable of loving them. Those are the families that fall apart. It's not that somebody was straight and married a woman, a straight guy married a woman and then was – recruited by the Illuminati 1% to be gay, and that family fell apart. The problem is the homophobia that keeps that guy closeted, that then under duress, he marries an opposite-sex partner to pass as straight, and then his family falls apart because you can't bottle that up forever. It's, it's the closeted guys who are a threat to mm-hmm. uh, to families, period, not right. the, the closeted gays, closeted lesbians, a threat to the family, period. And, and there's this whole organization dedicated to Helping people who've married, who who were married by people who were gay or lesbian and lying about who they were, called the Straight Spouse Network because that's so devastating and it destroys families. So if you're concerned, I would Mm -hmm. say to this woman, if you you should address these people. If you're concerned about the black family, you want all black people who are queer to feel comfortable enough to come out, so they don't start a family Mm -hmm. with the wrong person and then blow that family up when they come tumbling out or they're outed.
2: Yeah, you you are you are absolutely right. I mean that's the Correct, um, or I should say, the perfect argument for for the caller to use and and to hammer home every time someone gives her that um, conspiracy theory about someone else convincing or turning black men gay. And you know another thing people need to understand and realize, and I've written about this quite a bit. And I actually wrote a piece originally with a very provocative headline, which was how gay marriage can save the black family. Wow. And I decided to pull I decided to pull it back and qualify it a little bit just because I didn't want I just was not in the mood to to be fighting people on Twitter that particular day. But when you look at the data, when you look from the Williams Institute specifically, the the places where you have the highest concentration of same sex couples raising children, they are in some of the most unreal states you could imagine: Alabama, Mississippi, Kentucky, Wyoming. We've talked Wyoming. about we've
0: talked about that before on this show. And the driver that that creates those families is is homophobia. Because when you look at those couples, those same sex couples raising children in the South, in the Mississippi or in Alabama those children were conceived in a prior relationship in a heterosexual relationship that that person entered into and then it, it ended because they were gay and closeted they came out divorced their mm-hmm. straight partner got a same sex partner and so the biggest mm-hmm. generator of same sex couple headed families in this country is homophobia
2: and on on top of that so you've got you you've got these families concentrated in the south most most of those families are are living below the poverty line. And then when you really sift through the data, mo- most of those families raising children in the South, uh, same-sex couples raising children in the South, a majority of them are African-American. And so if those couples were able to legally marry in those states then they would be able to avail themselves of all the rights and privileges that heterosexual couples have been availing themselves for for decades and would be able to, to save those, be able to help those families.
0: I am so glad you've made this point because I've made this point a million times, but I'm a gay white man. Because you often hear from far left queers that marriage is only something that gay, white, cisgendered, wealthy male couples care about. And I think marriage and the access to marriage rights is a civil justice issue, is a social justice issue because because it would afford to many couples of color, poor working class struggling, who are likelier as poor working class struggling people to have homophobic or hostile families – to avail themselves of the ability, not just to access the rights, the privileges, the the benefits financially, social security benefits, survivor benefits, um, health insurance, but to also avail themselves of, I think, what is the most crucial component of marriage, which we never talk about and is rarely acknowledged, which is the ability to determine for yourself who your immediate next of kin is. So you're not mm-hmm. stuck with it being an aunt, a brother. A parent who's homophobic, but you can dec- you can create for yourself your own immediate next of kin, which is your partner, your same sex partner. It can be your husband or your wife. And to not have that power, as uh, a, a, as you know, if you're disadvantaged in any way, or and if you're particularly if you're struggling with the disadvantage of homophobic or hostile family of origin, to not have that power is really disabling. It puts you at an enormous risk particularly as you age. And when you see marriage come to a place like Maryland, you see it come to a place like DC, not a place like Washington state where which is overwhelmingly white, but you see it come to DC and you see all the couples lined up the first day to marry and it's not all gay white male couples with money falling out of their pockets.
2: Right. And to the, fir- the to the first point of what you just made, those families, I mean, marriage gives you the right to choose your next of kin. But a lot of the families we're talking about, there are children involved and marriage would allow those spouses to be able to have those children be recognized as their own. Because right now there are situations where people, something happens and because they're not legally recognized as the parent those families, those families stand, the, stand the potential of being torn apart. When marriage comes to particular states and the people you see, I thought it was very significant and quite moving that the very first couple to get married in Alabama was an um, African-American lesbian couple. And um, I don't recall seeing their pictures on the front page of the New York Times. But their picture made the front page of the International New York Times. This is so cute, black lesbian couple, so excited about, about getting married. That picture is what the caller needs to find, cut out, and hand to anyone and everyone who has the temerity to say that someone who's African-American, who is gay or lesbian, is that way because of the man.
0: Before we let you go, while I have you on the phone, here's the 1% Illuminati theory of how black men or anybody gets to be gay. Let's address briefly the Dr. Ben Carson theory of how you get to be gay. Uh, We talked about Dr. (laughs) Ben Carson at great length at the top of the show. We don't need to unpack the whole thing. But I'm just wondering how long you spent in prison, Jonathan Capehart, and at what point during your stay in prison, you turned gay. For me, it was day one. (laughs)
2: <laughs> i mean i don't know how i turned gay because i've never been to prison the closest i've come to prison is watching oz over <laughs> and over and over again
0: jonathan k part he's a regular contributor at msnbc and an opinion writer for the washington post thank you so much for jumping on the phone and fielding this one with me
2: thanks dan thanks
5: so much hi uh i'm 24 uh male from australia i'm sorry I've been with my girlfriend for about three years and uh, we're actually starting to talk about getting married and uh, I'm really, really excited about it. We're highly compatible intellectually, uh, philosophically, sexually, but uh, there's a point of difference that sort of arises when we start talking about it is that uh, I'm agnostic and uh, I'm a spiritual person and I believe in a higher power, but I fundamentally have issues with organized religion and my girlfriend is was raised Catholic she's about the most left-wing progressive Catholic you could come across, but when we actually talked about, you know, if we were going to get married where, then she said she wanted to get married in a church, and I said there wasn't a hope in hell of me getting married in a church, and it actually created a fair bit of tension because she couldn't couldn't see any reason why I couldn't get married in a church if I was agnostic and and, you know, couldn't subscribe to any uh, particular religion and she thought I wouldn't have cared, and I said I do and I did and we yeah, we sort of got stuck on that point. We haven't really talked about it since. Um, I'm just looking for some help on uh or some advice on how to negotiate because I you know, I with my morals and beliefs don't agree with being married in a church and uh the only thing that we can tell me to get married in church is that the girl that I love wants to.
0: Before I get to your problem, I just want to share a little funny story. Last Saturday afternoon, I was in San Francisco, and I went for a walk, and I walked by this Catholic church, St. Patrick's, and I like to duck into churches because I like church architecture, I like Catholic kitsch, I'm Catholic, raised Catholic, and while I was at St. Patrick's, I did a little thing I sometimes do when I slip into churches. I put a dollar in the little box to get a candle, and I got a candle, and I lit it, and I put it in front of a statue of the Virgin Mary, Mother of God. For my mom. And I even said a Hail Mary for my mom. I am an atheist. I do not believe anyone heard my prayer. It was just a nice way for me to remember fondly and lovingly my mother. And it was a gesture that my mother would have appreciated very much. And if it turns out that she was right about all this Jesus shit, she heard me. Right? But it was just sort of a a loving gesture. And it was a way for me to remember my mother, who I loved very much. And you may have heard about this particular visit to this particular Catholic church because on my way out, I spotted uh, what I thought was John Paul II, a statue of him, like a saint statue. Um, And what was weird about it was the fingers had been broken off or something or somehow damaged and they'd been repaired in such a way that the fingers were basically kind of smeared with all this white goo, probably glue of some sort. and. What it looks like when you see the picture that I tweeted out and put on my Instagram at fake Dan Savage on Twitter at Dan Savage on Instagram. If you want to see the photograph, you can go to my Twitter account and scroll around or you can go to my Instagram. And so I tweeted out the picture with this. The repair on this statue of John Paul II makes him look like he just stuck two fingers in a squeaky clean altar boy. And this blew up on right wing blogs. I was also called out for my horrible mistake, which was this was Pius X. The 10th. Pope Pius, who's a saint, and not John Paul II. And how could I make that mistake if you see the statue? It looks just as much like JP II as it does like Pius X. Whatever. And uh, Newsbusters, a right-wing website, called me a vile and disgusting hater because I made a joke about a plaster statue in a church having greasy Crisco-covered fingers or looking like it did. Anyway, that was my scandal du jour this week. I'm always in trouble with somebody. I, I say all this to you, caller, not to draw attention to John Paul II or Pius X's greasy fingers at St. Patrick's Cathedral, where I'm sure they're furiously and quickly repairing the statue now that it is national news. Uh, I, I'm saying this to you to draw attention to the first part of the story. The I drop by a church. I am an atheist, like you. Actually, I'm more of an atheist than you're an agnostic. I'm an atheist. I'm an atheist, right? I've spun out this whole story for you, caller, not to draw attention to. You know, my scandal du jour, it's always something with me, the greasy fingers on Pius X at St. Patrick's Church in San Francisco where I'm sure they're furiously doing repairs now that it's national news. But to the beginning part of the story where I dropped by a church and I lit a candle and I said a Hail Mary for my mother who was a believer because it was a kind gesture because it was no skin off my ass literally and it was – A nice way to remember my mom. A loving way to remember my mom. Seems to me that marrying in a church, because that's what your fiancé, the woman you would like to marry, prefers, is not much skin off your ass. you got to get married somewhere. You're not going to be able to get married in some fundy, crazy church or some Catholic church because you're not Catholic. And a Catholic church, most of them, almost all of them, will not marry Catholics to non-Catholics and they require people to do all sorts of pre-marriage counseling, jumping through Catholic hoops. And if you don't do that, and you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't be expected to go lie to a priest for six months before you get married, you're not going to be able to get married in a Catholic church. If what she wants is just some stained glass and prettiness and a church to marry in because some part of that still vibes for her, why wouldn't? just want to give that to her what skin is it off your ass it's no skin off my ass to go to church remember my mother say a prayer that she used to say and if she's right and she's up there she would enjoy hearing and i don't believe she was right and i don't believe she was up there i don't think she heard me it cost me nothing well a buck for the candle besides that cost me nothing and it was a loving thing to do in memory of my beloved and much-missed mother Seems to me that the loving thing to do for your still present and presumably much loved girlfriend of three years whom you would like to marry is to not make a big fucking issue out of marrying in a church. You're not betraying yourself. You don't have to take communion. You don't have to kneel. You don't have to say any goddamn prayers. But if that's the venue where she would like to marry, give her that gift, a loving gesture on your part and the kind of compromise the first of perhaps many that you will have to make in your married life. So don't be a stick in the mud, dickbag, atheist, agnostic douche about this. Marry the woman where she wants to be married. Okay. We're going to take a quick break from the calls to uh, bring a guest on a frequent guest on the Savage Love cast, frequent guest expert over the years in Savage Love. And she has a new book out, Alice Drager, She's also a historian, in addition to being a frequent guest on my show, which is, of course, the most prestigious possible thing a sex (laughs) researcher or writer can be. She's also a historian of sexuality at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. She did groundbreaking and historic work advocating for the intersex and other people with atypical genitalia. She's the author of four books, including her newest out this week from Penguin called Galileo's Middle Finger Heretics, Activists, and the Search for Justice in Science and she's joining me by phone from Chicago. How are you, Alice?
6: Good, Dan. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, My pleasure. Congratulations. I know that shitting a book is a nightmare, and you just shat a book, so congrats.
6: But you know what makes it all better is when Dan Savage blurbs it for you.
0: (laughs) I did blurb it. I've read the book. It's amazing and and really fascinating and really gripping. It reads like a series of thrillers. It really does. For people who haven't yet read the book and aren't familiar with – it. uh, Can you tell us what the idea of the book is and what you're wrestling with in the book as you tell these different stories about the conflict between sometimes social justice movements and science?
6: Yeah, I'm looking at the fights that break out between scientists who make claims about people's identities and the activists who don't like those claims about them. So it turns out a lot of the book is about sex, because that's where you get in a lot of trouble when you start making claims about people's identities in terms of their gender or their sexual orientation, or their um, sexual development. So these tracks a whole bunch of cases where people got in trouble, sometimes myself, and also takes a really sympathetic view of the side of the activist, because as you know, I'm sometimes an activist as well, and the the last third of the book deals with a case that you helped me with, Dan, where there was an attempt by a researcher to basically do a kind of fetal engineering to stop children from being born intersex, but also to stop them from being born lesbian, Or tomboyish. Um, And the problems I had with that were not that per se, but the problem of lying to the parents about what was really known with regard to the danger of this drug.
0: Would you have been okay with that if the drug had not been dangerous and people were trying to engineer out tomboyishness or lesbianism?
6: No, I think that there's absolutely no medical reason to prevent things that are not diseases, and I don't think being a tomboy or a lesbian is a disease. But what horrified me much more was finding out that the federal government had been paying for studies to see if you could prevent lesbianism as late as the mid-1990s. And who was this Uh,
0: particular researcher? Let's talk about that case first. This was somebody who worked in pediatrics who was using a drug off-label to prevent lesbianism and tomboyish and intersex conditions in some girls by basically treating all women who had... The condition that you're not going to name because I'm too much of a stoner to remember it off the top of my head.
6: <laughs> yeah, the condition is called congenital adrenal hyperplasia, or CAH, and it's a condition where for the fetal girls, they can have too high a level of androgens, and that can cause their genitals to develop to be intersex, so in between the sexes or more male-like. And, and, and um, wait,
0: wait, for, remember that for the layperson, when you say androgen, what are you talking about?
6: We're talking about a kind of hormone, so testosterone is one type of androgen. It's kind of um, hormone that makes our bodies to be more similar to a masculine style. The reason that we have um, these kinds of hormones is because they're important for our health. So men and women both produce them, but men have more of them. And if a fetus is developing that's supposed to be a female fetus, but it has high levels of androgens, it can develop to have genitals that are in between the sexes or even, in some cases, male-like Mm-hmm. Um, and in those cases, we also know from the research that those children are more likely to have um, male-typical behaviors and more likely to also turn out to be lesbian or bisexual compared to other females.
0: And this, is, uh, and, this is, more and this is one of the grains of sand on the beach of evidence that there is a genetic component to homosexuality, is it not?
6: Absolutely. it's It's been one of the key cases that people have looked at to try to figure out whether or not sexual orientation might be inborn, and it gives us good evidence that, in fact, there is an innate component to sexual orientation. So what
0: was this researcher doing, then, or this doctor?
6: Well, this is—the major proponent of it is a physician named Maria New, and she's a pediatric endocrinologist who's based in New York. What she was doing was telling the parents that this had been found safe for mother and child and bringing them into the clinic on that basis, being told this is perfectly safe— and signing them up for the treatment and giving them the treatment, and then later going to the National Institutes of Health and getting money to study retrospectively, so looking backwards to see if, in fact, it was safe, and using those same families that she had told it was safe, so far as I can tell, to then study whether or not it was safe and get grant money to see that.
0: And you raised holy hell about this, and rightfully so. And that chapter, I did, and
6: you helped me. And that
0: chapter of the book unpacks what happened and the fallout, and it's a little bit of a heartbreaker because you didn't get everything you wanted, Um, and I don't think we should keep unpacking it. We should let people be interested and go get the book and read about this case. It's fascinating. Another case that you cover in the book that I thought was fascinating was about uh, rape and sexual assault and sometimes the sexual abuse of children and how the data, the science, the research didn't always back up the sort of social justice arguments and position, that rape is always about power, uh, in one example, or that children are always destroyed by having been molested. And that isn't true. The data doesn't back that up. Why are those things so controversial to acknowledge and talk about? Isn't it a good thing that it's the sexual assault of children, while illegal and it ought to be illegal and potentially very traumatizing, isn't in all cases automatically traumatizing? Shouldn't that be some comfort to victims of uh, uh, of this sort of thing or to, or to the people in the lives of someone who's been victimized by this sort of thing, that it's not a death warrant, that they're not going to be completely and utterly destroyed by that? Why was that controversial when that research came forth, do you think?
6: Well, it was controversial in part because the people who are activist pedophiles decided to try to use it to claim that they weren't harming children, and so they should just be allowed to have sex with children. That's part of the problem of what goes on with this stuff is that people take scientific research and assume that it tells us how we should behave scientific research is really designed to tell us what's true about the world not what we should hope is true or what we should decide to do about it mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. what happened in that case was that um, pedophile activists decided to use it as a reason to say that you know we should all just get out of their way and let them have sex with kids because all but we're doing is because right.
0: all we're doing is playing Russian roulette with their lives we're not <laughs> they might not be destroyed by it
6: we do know that kids are sometimes quite harmed um, especially if it's younger children particularly if it's Uh, girls as opposed to boys. Girls turn out to be more harmed. Um, If there's physical abuse associated with the sexual abuse, then they're more likely to be harmed. If there's emotional abuse associated with it, so there's definitely cases where it can be harmful, and no question that there are many cases where people have been harmed, but I think what people don't want to hear is complicated stories. They want to hear a simplistic story that says, Pedophilia always leaves a person permanently harmed, and that's why we have to stop it. But, you know, I think you and I agree that the reason pedophilia shouldn't be enacted upon if somebody has that orientation is because a child can't consent. Mm -hmm. So for us, I think it's very logically an issue of consent, but a lot of people want to believe that it's always harmful and that's why you shouldn't do it. With regard to the issue of of rape, I think what goes on there, you know, the feminists who shifted the dialogue from being about rape is about sex to the idea that rape is about power— did something useful, which was to take a lot of the attention off the victim and put it on the perpetrator. And that was really important.
3: Mm-hmm. But the
6: problem with that approach has been that you end up with a story where if what happened is pretty clearly sexual, then somehow rape didn't happen. And so that that was a kind of story that ended up unfortunately denying the reality of a lot of people who had been raped, where it was pretty clear that the guy was not necessarily enacting some kind of power struggle. He was really into it for the sex. And so The researchers who have looked at that have tried to sort of pull back and say, how can we understand rape as a sexual act and how can we start to understand it in terms of the nature of humans, which is not at all to say that you forgive rape or you allow rape or you don't prosecute rape. You absolutely do. But people want these simple stories. And, you know, the simple story for a long time about rape has been it's about power. And so it's always about some guy trying to have power over you. It's about rape culture. It's about patriarchy. And that's been a story that's been very satisfying politically, but it loses the story where rape is really about sex. And part of the problem I have with that is, you know, if a college guy gets really horny and rapes a girl, and he feels like, well, I wasn't into having power over her, right? Then in his mind, it's not rape. And we need to make sure people understand that rape is an issue of consent, first and
3: foremost.
0: And in telling these stories in these books, you're telling a narrative. These are stories about people, about researchers, about scientists who came up with Did some research, came up with data that flew in the face of, I don't know, postures, positions, political positions, sort of consensus political positions and attitudes toward a particular topic. And then these scientists, these researchers were pilloried and attacked, sometimes on television, in Congress. Some of their lives were upended and destroyed. And you, in, in this book, in sometimes a very thrilling way, rescue these people and their reputations,
6: yeah, I think I do a, a little bit of that, but I don't want to overestimate what I'm able to do for them. I mean, a lot of these folks are still suffering from the kinds of reputation assaults that they've been through from the misrepresentation of their research, and that's that's been a big problem for a lot of them. So a lot of what I do nowadays actually is give advice, back-channel to people who are approaching these kinds of situations or have found themselves in these situations in terms of what can they do mm-hmm. to take care yeah. of themselves and take care of their reputation. It's it's kind of weird to be in this position because for a long time I was a science studies critic. And I find myself helping scientists all the time now.
0: Let's talk about Michael Bailey, which is the beginning of the book and perhaps is going to be the most controversial chapter in the book. What did he do? And what is the issue? And this touches on issues of sexual, uh, this touches on issues of gender identity. This is about trans issues, and it's hugely controversial. Tell us about it.
6: So Bailey's a, a really um, interesting character. He's a Northwestern psychology professor, so he's at the same university I am. Although we hadn't met when I, uh, but we met only shortly before I started researching what had happened to him. What happened to him was he published a very popular book called "The Man Who Would Be Queen." Um, the subtitle something like "The Science of Gender and, Trend- and Gender Bending." And what he was looking at in that book was males who have some fem- feminine component to them. So he was looking at gay men for one thing, because gay men on average have, are slightly skewed in the female direction in terms of interests and hobbies and occupations and that sort of thing. But then he was also looking at transgender. So he was looking at people who are transgender who transition from male to female. And in there, he was supporting the view of a researcher named Ray Blanchard, And this is the idea that there are two kinds of people who are male to female. And the one um, is a kind who's very feminine from early in childhood, is attracted to other males. And this is the kind of person who transitioned and becomes a trans woman and ends up appearing to be a straight trans woman. So she's interested in sex with men. But the controversial part was the other category, which Blanchard called autogynophilia. And I'll explain what that means. These are men who appear to be straight and often are married to women, have ordinary kind of straight lives, but they have an interest, and that is an interest, a sexual interest, a sort of sexual orientation, an interest in the idea of being or becoming women, and they're sexually aroused by this. So the word auto refers to the interest in the self, gyna, so um, female, philia, attraction to the female, but in this case of yourself. So Blanchard argued, and and Bailey put forth this idea as well, that the folks in that side of the category are transitioning gender in part out of a sexual orientation, so the sexual orientation being that they are attracted to women, but they're also attracted to the idea of being women. Mm -hmm. And this turned out to be very controversial because historically transgender people have tried to decouple sexual orientation from gender and to say that their issue is only about gender and not about sexual orientation. But what Blanchard is also describing has historically been seen as a kind of perverted sexuality. I don't think it should be. I think it should be understood like another type of sexuality because we have lots of kinds. But the people who didn't like this view of um, transgenderism for that particular category including three prominent trans women came after Bailey and ended up accusing him of all sorts of things, which I figured when I heard about it was probably true. (laughs) Mm
4: -hmm. But when I
6: started doing actually the research, which turned into a year of research started unpacking what I could actually know about what happened. I was shocked to find that charge after charge just fell down, that these had been basically charges that were false, um, that in some cases were probably designed to take him down, but that the people making them should have known that they weren't true perhaps did know that they weren't true, but this had just about ruined his life. And so the, the sin that he had committed was putting forth a scientific idea that threatened these folks identity and they came after him for it.
0: I've, I had a conversation with a trans friend of mine about autogynephilia, which she was familiar with uh, as a concept. And it wasn't just that it threatened and she didn't like the theory. She doesn't want it talked about. She doesn't want it promoted. She doesn't want to discuss not because it threatens her, gender identity but because she believes and she would argue it threatens her physical safety because whether or not autogynophilia is a thing, whether or not there are two kinds of trans people both legitimate but no one's saying that people who are autogynophilic shouldn't transition and be who they want to be and live how they want to live but that it puts out into the culture that trans women are these perverts who are getting off on using the bathroom, who are getting off on living as women and that fuels a lot of attacks on trans women, This sense that they're getting away with something, that they're getting a secret thrill and secretly perving out on existing in the world as women. And that, that is what she identifies as threatening, not the question about her identity, but the question about her safety.
6: Yeah, this is one of the things I talk about in the book that I think Bailey was somewhat naive with regard to understanding the dangers, the political dangers of this approach. Uh, That said, I think at some level he would still have promoted it because he believes that truth is truth and we should learn to deal with the rest of it in a responsible, mature fashion, which is to say that people shouldn't feel any right to bash somebody because they have a particular sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, historically speaking, from what we can tell, most of the trans women who have been beaten up and killed have been trans women of the other type, Um, that is to say, women who have been perceived as having sex with men and who are thought to be sort of closeting themselves and not being clear that they're supposedly really gay. Mm -hmm. So historically, that's been the women who have been killed. But there have been some women on the other side of the spectrum who have started their lives as straight men and become women who have been subject absolutely to bashing and to violence. Um, So that is a concern. But I think that the way we might want to deal with that concern is to try to explain to people that, all sexual orientations are complicated and there's no evidence that people choose their sexual orientations and that this is all a question of how you treat other people. And we can expect people of all sexual orientations to treat each other well. And we should judge people based on that, not an assumption that just because they have a particular orientation Mm -hmm. that they're somehow going to be dangerous. So this, this reminds me of, you know, a lot of, in a lot of places still today in some places, people who are gay, men who are gay are not allowed to be teachers Because of the idea that they're somehow going to go after the young boys. Well, that's a total misunderstanding, right, of what it means to be gay. And I think the idea that trans women are going to go into bathrooms and sexually assault or get off on the idea of seeing other women is just wrong. And people need to be educated that, just like they need to be educated about what it means to be gay or what it means to be bisexual or what it means to be any other sexual orientation.
0: Although it is hugely controversial among trans people to describe trans as a sexual orientation as opposed to a gender identity.
6: I think it's both and I think for all of us there's complicated ways in which we have sexual orientations and gender identities. So part of the part of the challenge here is that those things have gotten decoupled and we've forgotten that for all of us our gender identities are tied up with our sexual orientation. So I'm betting Dan that when you have sex with a man, you're having sex as a man.
0: Mm-hmm. That your
6: gender mm-hmm. matters in that equation. And that's part of what I think we've failed to appreciate is that this isn't special for trans people. This is true for cis people like us, too, that what you have is a situation where your gender identity and your sexual orientation, this gets all tangled up. And that's okay that it's all tangled up. And and whether or not somebody should be allowed to transition, whether or not somebody should be respected in terms of her own gender identity, all that stuff is about general respect. And to me, it doesn't matter how they got there. If somebody says to me, she's a woman, I'm going to treat her as a woman, respect her as a woman, identify her as a woman, the whole nine yards and not get in the way of her getting access to the technology she needs
0: the book is galileo's middle finger heretics activists and the search for justice in science by alice Draeger out this week from penguin right penguins a publisher right i read the book i read it in one long sitting because it is really gripping hearing about these stories these times when science and the data is in conflict with the way we wish things were in many cases for many people and that ain't always the way the science shakes out. It's a great and terrific read. Thank you for coming on the show today, Alice. Really appreciate it. Good luck with the book.
6: Thanks, Dan. I appreciate your bravery in having me
4: on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> my pleasure.
4: Hi, Dan. I love your show. I'm a woman in her late 20s. I've been married for just over a decade. And you know, my husband and I listened to your show, and we did everything right before we dated. You know, We made sure we had the same sex compatibility. We are both. Extremely sexual people. Uh, he's a little more vanilla than I am, but he loves the idea of um, me getting off on it. So if it gets me off, he'll do it. He's been really great that way, and I will do almost anything for him. In the last year, maybe year and a half, he's gotten a little withdrawn. He um, he masturbates all the time, like constantly. But he's not asking me for sex anymore, and I had some conversations with him about it where I'd say, like, you know, if you want sex and I'm home, you just have to ask, guys. I usually want sex. Actually, I've never turned down sex ever, so I don't know why he's suddenly so withdrawn. He hides in, like, our spare room or the computer room. Literally, I'll just go looking for him because, like, dinner's ready and he's masturbating. And I just, I don't know what to do. Last time I talked to him about it, we fought, which is the first time we've ever fought about sex in over a decade. And uh, he said that it's because it takes too long for me to get ready. And he didn't want to make me feel bad, so he figured he'd just masturbate. And I'm wondering, should I feel happy that my husband doesn't want to, use me as a flashlight because he just wants to get off or should I be a little upset that he's not interested in the romantic connection that we have with sex. So he's just going off and masturbating.
0: I don't subscribe to the addiction model uh, uh, when it's attached to porn. I don't think your husband is addicted to porn. I think your husband is an asshole. I think your husband is neglecting you. I think your husband is being casually, perhaps even maliciously, thoughtlessly cruel to you. And I don't think you should put up with this. You say you're in your late 20s. You've been married for a decade. That means that this is someone you've been with since you were both teenagers. Those kinds of marriages tend not to work out over the long run. You may not have known who you were sexually. He may not have known who he was sexually when you got together. And he has now worked it out for himself. And whoever he is sexually, whatever he's learned or discovered about himself, you're not the right sex partner for him. And he's treating you in this terribly cruel, shitty way for that reason. And he's compulsively masturbating and excluding you from inclusion in his erotic inner life, in his sex life, and depriving you of intimacy, sex, affection. And you should be angry and you should confront him about it. And you should drag him to couples counseling and get to the bottom of what's going on. And what's going on isn't chemically addicted to porn. What's going on is getting something from porn that he can't get from you. And what is that thing? Perhaps that thing is there's a laundry list of activities he wishes he was doing and you guys aren't doing and a no holds barred, everything on the table, including divorce conversation moderated by an outside third party by a counselor or a therapist. You guys can talk about that. Or maybe it'll come out that just he feels like he married the wrong person. Now what do you do? That You aren't who he wants to be with sexually. And then what? Do you have an open marriage? Do you have a companionate marriage? Do You give him freedom to go do what he's jacking off about while you have freedom to go find somebody who wants to be with you the way you want to have someone be with you. Everything should be on the table to negotiate. You sound really calm right now about this situation that you find yourself in. So that's a good place to start from. In a place of calm. You're not yet in full anger, rejection, recrimination mode. And perhaps neither is he. So maybe you guys can renegotiate new terms. Perhaps you guys can pick the lock and there's some block. And if you address it directly, he'll be freed up again. And you're, you'll be able to reestablish your sexual connection again. I, I don't know. The only person who really knows what's going on is your husband. And you guys are talking around it, not talking about it. And the the excuse he gave you, you take too long to get ready, that is bullshit. It's also transference, not transference, projection. He's faulting you or trying to lay the blame at your feet for something that is his. Perhaps not his fault. Perhaps not something that he intentionally did. Not a shitty choice he made from, from a selfish place, but transferring to you the blame for a circumstance that you both now find yourself trapped in that he needs to take some responsibility for and start communicating with you about. So find a couples counselor, make an appointment, put everything on the table, including divorce.
7: Hi, Dan. I recently became aware of a situation with my best friend and I was working for your advice. My best friend is a gay man in his twenties. Um, he recently in the past couple of years met a guy that he really loves and, They're about to take the next step and move in together. I'm really excited for them. I love their relationship. The only problem that he has is that his boyfriend, about less than 10 years ago, was living an entirely different life. He's from Tennessee, very much very Southern. Um, He was in the military. He married a woman at a pretty young age in his early 20s, and they had a daughter. Um, I don't know his his exact coming out story, but um, he moved out to California from the South and ever since has been living his real life, his true self, Um, even became a leather daddy and is very big in the gay community. The problem that we're facing is that as my friend is now moving into his home, um, he's running into the problem of when his daughter comes to visit. Uh, his whole family is not aware that he is gay. He has not come out to them and he is deathly afraid to do so. So his daughter is very unaware that he's in this very happy, very loving relationship and that he's about to take this new step. Except with his boyfriend, they, the problem that's like the big issue is that my best friend refuses to go back into the closet. He refuses to deny his true self and even, you know, have to lie in front of people that he's now getting to know. So now that they are about to take this next step, he is stuck in a position where he doesn't know exactly how to handle when uh, his boyfriend's daughter comes to visit. Does he tell her what do they say, how to move forward? And his boyfriend is pretty much avoiding the whole conversation at this point. Um, I'm just really interested to hear what you have to say. How should he handle it? How could he encourage his boyfriend to, you know, tell the truth and, and and educate his daughter and take this moment to open her eyes to the other you know, side of the story and maybe try to get her to be someone who can be a new advocate of gay rights and um, her father and what he's really like.
0: I'm going to assume that your friend who's got the closeted boyfriend who's the other daddy confided in you about this situation, asked you what you thought he should do, and then you called me. Otherwise, it's a mind-your-own-business situation. If your friend is handling this and doesn't have a problem with it and is just trying to logistically work out how he can closet himself perhaps or whether he should when his boyfriend's daughter comes to visit, uh, it's none of your business. But if he's asking you for help and you don't know what to tell him and that's why you're calling me, I guess I could offer you some advice, which would be to tell your friend that he has a right to make a demand, that he has a right to insist that he will not recloset himself to accommodate his current boyfriend's cowardice. He's an adult man, an adult man with children. And he ran halfway across the country to get away from his family, his ex-wife, not abandon his child. He still has a relationship with his child, but he's removed himself from everyone and everything that he knew before. So he could come out and... He needs to come all the way the fuck out. What does he have to lose? Hopefully he doesn't have his relationship with his daughter to lose. If that's the case, if he somehow is trapped in some horrible, insanely homophobic judicial process, which does sometimes happen, but can be appealed and usually successfully, even shitty, shitty, shitty red states, that can be fixed. And he has no excuse to be closeted. He has no excuse. And your friend would be well advised to use his presence – in his boyfriend's life as leverage to get his boyfriend to do what he must do at some point, what he should do, which is to come all the way the fuck out to everybody, to all of the people in his life, to the family that he left behind. Otherwise he's just dragging your friend, his new boyfriend into the closet with him. You can't marry someone in a closet. You say that they're thinking about taking the next step of moving in together, perhaps the next step of marriage at some point. That's not a closeted thing marriage is a public act and a marriage is a public relationship. You can't be secretly married to someone except in Shakespeare plays. So it'll have to be out by then. And the kid won't have a problem with it. Kids don't have a problem with gay parents, gay people unless they've been thoroughly warped by the adults in their lives. And even then they're usually very accepting. It's the adults who have a problem with it. And one of the adults right now who has a problem with it is your good friend's leather daddy boyfriend. He's the one with the problem. Problem being the closet, the problem being his cowardice. His Daughter probably doesn't have a problem with it. And his problem is becoming your friend's problem. And at some point your friend will have to ask himself what he's willing to live with and accept. If his leather daddy boyfriend lays out the closet or occasionally returning to the closet is the price of admission that your friend must pay to be with him, then your friend has to ask himself whether that's the price of admission he's willing to pay to be in this relationship. And if it isn't, then he needs to go. He needs to end it. And maybe seeing the relationship end because he's closeted will inspire the Leather Daddy boyfriend to finally come all the fuck the way out, to stop being a chicken shit.
5: Hi, Dan. This is in response to the caller on episode 436 that was having trouble blowing his load when his girlfriend started to, or when he started talking dirty to his girlfriend, there's a book called The Multiorgasmic Man. I read it, and boy did it help, and it's by Mantak Chia and Douglas Abrams. It's not available on the book reading website that you talk about, but it is available Probably, if he ends up going to a female-owned Pildo store, which was where I bought it.
4: Hi, Dan. This is in response to the guy who uh, couldn't hold his load in. Um, Something that my boyfriend does, he can't always hold it in, his load in. Either is he goes down on me before we even uh, kind of
8: initiate anything further, make sure I come. Then uh, we usually, I get to come a second time. So it's a great way to fulfill her while still fulfilling what you need. Hey, Dan. Um, I'm calling because I actually, um, was a part of episode 371 back in 2003. You answered my question, um, my boyfriend at the time. Uh, it took a really long time for him to come and I was wondering, you know, what could we do? Could I retrain his dick? And I wanted to give you a little bit of an update. So, Um, After uh, I got over my shock of hearing my question in the podcast, I actually played it for him Um, and it really started a really great conversation about our sex life and that has just continued throughout our relationship. Um, We have a really great sex life. I'm happy to report that... It does not take him as long to come now. It seems that I have a bit tra- retrained his dick. Um, and the best part is we're actually getting married. We're getting married this Saturday, uh, March 14th, and I'm really, really excited about it. And I think that you... Partially helped keep my relationship alive. We have a really great sex life. You helped me see that, you know, we could conquer what I thought might have been an issue and also um, keep the communication open. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, and um, you do a great service.
0: And we're going to leave it there. 206 201 2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206 201 2720. You can find the magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savagelovecast.com. Twice as many calls, more guests, and no ads with the subscription to Savage Lovecast. Hub is coming to Los Angeles, the Pacific Northwest's biggest, best, and only amateur porn film festival. This weekend at the Downtown Independent, last chance for Hump tickets. Hump is playing in L.A. March 12th through 14th. Go to HumpTour.com for tickets and to find out when Hump is coming. In the city closest to you. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Alice Drager on Twitter at Alice Drager. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of The Savage Lovecast. Thanks for